Hey, good morning, Exchange. I hope you are well. A good spot to turn to this morning, though we're going to be using uh, quite a bit of our Bibles, uh, is probably Genesis chapter 4. That's where we're going to start off. Uh, and as always, we make our passages available uh, on the Version app, but you can find that through the Church Center app, uh, which most of our registrations are on. Uh, there's a, a little button that says uh, Sermon Notes. And um, when you click on that, all the passages that we're going to use uh, are there for you. We're going to be in Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Hebrews, and Mark today. So we're, we're covering a wide scope of Scripture. Uh, so those, those will be available for you. And I just want to echo what Ed said earlier. Thank you for just celebrating with us last week. I loved the fact that we got to celebrate exchange uh, and just what the Lord is doing here, what the Lord uh, has done and what I believe that the Lord is doing and will do. I have binged those letters, so thank you. Uh, one thing that I want to mention to you uh, coming up, we'll put some uh, things about this um, online and in the latest, but uh, with the last few weeks and some things happening in Israel and Gaza, uh, that that might have you wondering and and certainly listening uh, to many people uh, have many opinions. Uh, and so uh, the, uh, there's, there's no shortage of things to read, to listen to, uh, to think through. Uh, but there is some question on w- w- what should I be listening to? What should I be thinking? How should I be praying about this? And so we wanted to uh, give you, we sent a primer out last week, uh, a podcast with some friends on it that were giving a, a really high level view of what's going on. I hope you were able to listen to that. Uh, on November 9th, uh, Thursday night at the Flex Space at 7.15, we're going to do a Q&A uh, on that. So we've got some really good friends here uh, locally uh, at Southeastern Seminary who are uh, much more versed at prophecy and things like that than, than we are. And so we're going to have a Q&A time, coffee, uh, very low um, kind of informal setting uh, where you're able to bring some of your questions about what is happening. And I've read uh, some podcasts. I've listened to some uh, people say that this is like the beginning of the end and this is what's happening and all the things. Uh, how can we know and be sure and all of what does scripture say about what's going on? Uh, and how do we know what is actually happening? And so uh, one of our friends from Southeastern is going to be there that night to help us answer some of those questions. So I hope you plan to attend. Bring your questions. Uh, I'll say this, though. There's no chapter and no verse that tells us what's happening directly right now. Uh, so what I do know is when we studied Revelation before, uh, the book of Revelation was, is, is here to give us hope and joy and, and a promise that Christ will rule and will reign forever. And so that's where we end up. That's where we will end up. Uh, but I would encourage you to, to be there. Uh, so for now, we're continuing our series called Welcome to Church, and we've been going through these commitments about what it looks like to be a member of exchange, and currently uh, our individual commitments. What does it look like to be in community with one another, the 51 one another's in Scripture? What do those take uh, to be applied here at exchange? And so what does it look like for people to care for one another, to honor one another, to be unified when things aren't uh, really easy? Uh, 
Uh, we didn't start there, though. We started with what is God's commitment to the church? What should leaders be committed to? What is the church committed to in itself? And so I, I think as we continue in this series, we have to remember that there's no community without individuals. There's no we without a me, right? And so when we look back at those things, we can say that the church should be doing these things. The church should love each other really well, but we can't, we can't do that unless I'm doing that. And that's where we turn these things to say, like, what does it look like for each member to commit to exchange their local church in a way that that protects unity, uh, in a way that furthers the kingdom of God? And so here's the the commitments we've been uh, looking at so far. We've uh, spent two weeks on each, uh, the new membership commitments that we're rolling out here. Uh, The first one is I commit to pursuing community and embracing accountability. Arrows out. Uh, looking for others that need uh, my presence in their life. I commit to submitting to the care, correction, and protection of leadership as Scripture pushes us. I commit to protecting the unity and health of exchange. And Today we come to the fourth, and that's this. I commit to sharing my time, my resources, and my gifts towards the mission and ministries of exchange. So we've covered some really difficult uh, things in the series so far, and each one of them, I think, cause us to live a life in a way that goes against what, what culture would compel us to do. And this one isn't any different. It's, it's really a life of surrender, a life of surrender. I, I think one of the things that I want to drill in today is that we're able to share with one another and to the corporate church because we have surrendered everything to God. I think when we read Acts chapter 2 and we see these amazing passages where the church is so loving one another that they're literally selling their possessions and property, not just like a yard sale of things that I don't want anymore, but they're literally selling property, pieces of land to say, there's someone in my family, there's someone in this community that needs help, that needs support. I'm going to sell something that's very precious to me and I'm going to give that so that this person can, can be provided for. There's a portion of Acts chapter 2 that sounds a little bit socialistic. I mean, it's socialist in in a way that makes me sometimes say, ah, I don't know if that sounds great to me. But the reason why it's not is because they have surrendered everything to the Lord and it's their choosing out of great joy that they say, this community matters so much to me. Nobody's forcing it. I'm not sacrificing it. I'm surrendering it in a way that says, listen, everything that I have is his. I claim nothing as my own. And so when we look at everything that we have, not just our money, but our time, our talent, our gifts, our abilities, all of those things, and when we look at them in a way that says everything I have belongs to him, we hold them very differently. We look at these things very differently. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at what it looks like, what it, what it feels like, what it means to live a life with open hands. It's easy to think only our finances in these, but that's not where I want to go. I want to talk about time and talent and all of the things that God has implanted in us. So if we have given our lives to Christ, there isn't just one part of us that doesn't belong to him. But I want to get through our minds that our hearts that we're, when we're asked to give up because uh, we're not asked to give anything up because he needs it. We're commanded to give because we need it. 
We're not asked to live our lives with open hands because God needs whatever is in our hands. We're asked to live our lives with open hands because we need to live our lives with open hands. And so I'm gonna share with you some passages that have shaped my thinking through this uh, subject. The first comes from Genesis chapter four at the very beginning, uh, verse three and four. And I want you to notice a couple of things about this. We see the really the first time someone brings an offering, someone gives something uh, to God. And we see it here with Cain and Abel. And he says this, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain become very angry and his countenance fell. We, we know the rest of this story. But I want you to focus on a couple of truths in this passage. There's a passage uh, about giving where there was nothing needed to buy or build. Think about this for a second. There, there was no tabernacle that was needed, that was getting ready to be completed. There was nothing that God wanted to build an altar. There was no missionaries to be sent. Perhaps at this moment in the world, every person on the face of the planet literally believed in God already. There was no ministries to be funded. There was nothing to be sent. It was simply that God had commanded Cain and Abel to live with open hands. Why? For the sake of sending missionaries across the globe? No. For the sake of building a tabernacle where they would worship? No. For the sake of doing something that God needed to do with what they brought? No. For the sake of their hearts. Before anything needed to be built or brought or sent, God commands Cain and Abel to live with open hands. Why? Because he needed it? No, because they did. They needed to live. They needed to operate with open hands. And here's what I want you to know and understand, that God graciously uses surrendered giving as a way to expose and shape our hearts. God graciously uses surrendered giving as a way to expose and to shape our hearts. Both Cain and Abel came across uh, this offering to the Lord, and we're not giving much details about the requirements, though I think there's some reasonable conclusions we can make. Notice that at the appointed time, they knew when to bring their offering. They brought it. They knew where to bring their offering to the Lord. They knew who they were giving their offering to. And we can assume that God gave them, when he gave them instructions on when to bring it, where to bring it, that he was also giving them instructions on how to bring it. He, he graciously explained to them how to bring their authoring. The, the author of Genesis uh, tells us that God's pleased with Abel's, but not with Cain's. And Cain's countenance fell, he gets angry, and the Lord says, whoa, 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 hey, listen, it's okay. Listen, you, you didn't understand. Uh, do right now, and you will be able to worship. Apparently, God had given Cain and Abel very specific instructions. Cain simply brought an offering, some part of his harvest. But in contrast, Abel brings his firstlings, his, his first fruit. The first animals born, the oldest, the largest, the strongest. He offers the fat portions. It's the good stuff. In other words, Abel gave God the first and the best of everything that he had. It took me a minute to understand this, I think, um, 
the significance of, of first fruits. We see this idea in scripture all the time, but I, I think our society has, has put us in a place where, uh, you know, uh, a lot of times things are just things on a screen. And the first doesn't really matter, or it doesn't really matter in the order that we do. But when you grow a garden, uh, first fruits matter. You've worked for months. You've tilled the ground. You've carefully weeded. You've carefully planted. You've carefully watered. And when you see those first fruits come up, you've waited for months to gain something from your reward. And the rest of your crop is also dependent that it will rain, that the animals and pests don't destroy those things. And so when you give the first fruits, when you're bringing the first fruits, you're trusting that the rest of your garden will continue to produce over and over and over again. There's this moment of faith where you say, there's nothing left. I'm giving everything that there is to give right now. And it's an act of faith. I think this idea of the first fruits forces our hearts to live in open hands with faith. It forces us to live this life directed towards God with open harm, open hands and faith. Uh, the boys and I got to do some backpacking uh, this weekend. And one of the things that I love about it uh, is that it's difficult, it's hard. Uh, you go for a long ways and there's multiple times on the trip on the trail that if I were able, I'm going to just be honest, if I were able, I would quit. We went this weekend uh, in our app that tells us where we would find water and different things like that uh, lied to us. It just lied to us, right? So we went 16 miles with no water because every water source we came to was dry. And there was multiple times where I thought to myself during this trail, you know what? If somebody was on the side of this trail right now that said, hey, just, just call it quits. I'd call it quits. I'd call it quits. What I love about the trails, what we do is we, get, uh, we, we drop our car off in one place and we shuttle back to a different place. So we're walking to our vehicle. And so we're never farther away from our car than when we start. And so when you take that first step, you're committed. You have to go forward. It's the only way to go. And I think in some ways, the Lord graciously gives us this principle of first fruits because he's desperately trying to shape our hearts towards faith to say, I mean, if once I surrender these things, whether it's resources, finances, my time, my talents, whether I give you the first things, Now I have to trust you. And the only way to go forward is trusting you with what you say you will give and provide. It's this opportunity we have to build our hearts towards a faithful surrender to God. Cain apparently did not have the faith to please God. And it seems clear that Abel was in relationship with God and Cain was separated from God. A very important principle is that God always inspects the giver and worshiper before he inspects the gift. Notice that Cain really didn't want to please God. That wasn't his end. His end was simply uh, to uplift himself, to validate himself, to fulfill an obligation. He wanted to serve God on his terms. It's amazing how 
sinful our hearts are and how easily we're convinced by ourselves that we have to these valid reasons for listing out our terms or service of obedience. Cain tried that. And it didn't end well. I want to book in this passage with another point, another passage that just a few chapters later in Genesis, Abraham, uh, if you remember at this point, was Abram. He left everything. Uh, he left the, the city of Ur with all of his possessions, all of his family, everything that he had to a promise. He went to a promise, nothing that God had given him yet. Later, uh, he separates from his nephew Lot because the land could not sustain themselves. So Lot goes one way, he goes another. Lot finds himself in trouble. Uh, he has gotten taken captive along with every one of uh, his family members and uh, his, uh, his, basically his staff, everyone that he's brought with him. They're all taken captive by this band of kings. Abram finds out about this and he goes and rescues uh, Lot. Not one man of Abram's army is killed or injured. It's a miraculous victory that Abram goes across and against all of these kings and defeats them. On his way back from that, he meets a man named Melchizedek. And he says this in Genesis 14, verse 18 through 20. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine after Abram had won this victory. Now he, listen to this, was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram, the God of the most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who handed over your enemies to you. And he gave them, and he, Abram, and he gave him a tenth of everything. Now, Hebrews tells us a little bit more about this man, Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. He said, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth and all the spoils, was first of all, uh, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, never having a beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains uh, a priest perpetually. Most theologians would say this is a pre-incarnate Christ that shows up in Genesis chapter 12 and he's meeting Abraham at the end of this battle. Abraham probably doesn't know that this is a pre-incarnate Christ, but he knows that this is a priest of the God most high and he surrenders over, he gives this offering of a tenth of what he has taken from this battle. Again, no missionaries to be sent right now. No tabernacle to be built. It's only done from a place of worship. I think so many times we get this in our head that, that we give and we serve and we support different things because, because God needs us. I think it's different. I, I think God uses what he has already given us because we need it. We need to live with open hands. We need our hearts to be soft towards God and what he's asking us to do. And I think this is the second thing, that God graciously allows and invites us to play a part in his mission through surrender giving. Of everything that we have, I, I want to reiterate, not just our resources, not just finances, but our time and our talents, our energy, all of those things that go into who we are, the things that we hold closest to our lives. God graciously allows us and invites us to play a part in his mission through open-handed life. 
when God calls Abram out of the land of Ur, he, he gave him a few promises. One, that he would go into a land uh, that God would give to him, that his descendants would be like the stars in the sky, that before his descendants would take the land uh, that would be theirs, though, that they would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. At this point, Abram didn't know about Pharaoh and Egypt, but his descendants would. His descendants would know what it was like to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God actually promises that to Abram longer than a thousand years beforehand. So think about this. Abram comes on the scene. uh, It's more than a thousand years before Moses does. A thousand years. And God says, when Abram is in the land that he will eventually give his children. Think about this for a second. Abram is standing in, basically, or close, very close to the promised land. And God gives him a promise that says, one day, Abram, your children will inherit this land. But before they do, they're going to spend 400 years in slavery in another land. I'm not God, but that doesn't make any sense to me. If it were me, I would say, Abram, I'm going to go ahead and give you this land. I'm going to give you what, I, what I'm going to promise you. And this is one thing that I'm learning lately. Is that I think anytime God gives you a promise, I've forgotten this in my life many times. Anytime God gives you a promise, the first thing he does is start to prepare your heart to receive that promise when it will come later down the road. I can't find a place in scripture where God gives a promise and then immediately gives that promise. I'm, I am going to do this and then immediately does it. You know why? Because God is after shaping our heart. So he does this with Abram. And he says, I'm going to give you and your descendants this land, but first you're going to spend 400 years in slavery. And then I'm going to bring you out of that land, back to this land. And when you come out of that land, out of 400 years of slavery, Those slaves can't build wealth. You will come out wealthy. You will come out like you have plundered that land. Notice this. Genesis 15. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in that land, and that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Enslaved and oppressed. I would say that that description makes me understand very clearly that the Hebrews have no chance of building any kind of wealth, maintaining any kind of property. They, they don't have a chance of doing that. He says, but I'll judge the nation that they serve and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. How does that happen? It seems difficult, maybe impossible. It seems maybe pointless, doesn't it? Abram is close, if not directly in that place that God is going to give him. Why not just now? Deuteronomy 6 says a little bit about why. Verse 10, he says, Then it will come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities, watch this, which you did not build, and houses full of goods of things that you did not fill, and carved cisterns which you did not carve out, and vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, And you eat and are satisfied. 
But then he says this, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God and shall worship him and swear by his name. So he's saying this. He said, I'm going to provide for you in this massive way and I'm going to bring you into this land that you had nothing to do with. I'm going to invite you and allow you to be a part of my story in something that you had no part in. He's giving them everything that they need. Rewind a little bit back to Egypt. The Hebrews didn't know God. They didn't know the promise that God had made to Abram. They were living in real time. The Lord tells them what he's going to do. He said, you're going to be slaves for 400 years. And they have nothing to your name. You're not going to come out of Egypt like, like slaves, but like uh, that you have been plundered the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 11, verse 2, God is speaking now to Moses. And he said, speak now so that the people hear that each man is to ask his neighbor and each woman of her neighbor and articles of silver and gold uh, that they will give. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Think about this for a second. The Egyptians who hated the Hebrews, God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ask your neighbor, the Egyptian that hates you. You're getting ready to leave. They're going to have to work now that they had not had to work like before. Now their free labor is gone, right? The, the ones who are responsible for all of the plagues that have just demolished Egypt at this point, you. But you're going to ask them, you're going to say, hey, could you give me your stuff, gold and silver, anything you have, could you give it to me? And they're going to look at you and say, yes, yes, I will. It doesn't make any sense. It's only because of the favor of God. It's only because God is working this plan in place. And he put it in place a thousand years before. A thousand years before, God said, this is how it's going to go. You did not build your wealth, but I'm going to give it to you. You did not build the city, but I'm going to give it to you. And so Exodus 35. He says, Moses spoke to the congregation saying, Lord, this is what he said. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded for us. Take from... um, Actually, sorry, I'm going to back up one, one second. Exodus 12. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they requested the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord gave them and the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. And therefore they plundered the Egyptians. They're walking out of Egypt like somebody just gave them, you know, like... You have 24 hours, you know, in whatever store you want to carry out as much as you can, right? Bass Pro or something like that, you know? I would have things shoved in every pocket, right? I just picture all the Egyptians be like, I don't know where to put this. They're walking out of Egypt, like scripture says, like they plundered the Egyptians. And God gave it to them. He gave it to them. Why? So that they could hoard it? No, listen, just a little while later, the Lord makes this request. He says, Moses spoke to the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Take for yourselves among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever's willing of a willing heart is to bring it to the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, purple, scarlet material, fine linens, goat hair, ram skin dyed uh, red, fine leather, Acadia wood, oil for lighting, 
and spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones, ephod and the breastpiece. So, so the Lord is going to do this thing. He's building a tabernacle. He's building a tabernacle and, and the Hebrews have nothing to contribute to it. He says, I, I've got that covered. When you come out of Egypt, it's going to be like you have plundered them. And then I'm going to say a little bit later, hey, does anybody have anything they'd like to contribute? You see what he's doing? He's inviting them and allowing them, really allowing them to play a part in something they would never be able to do without his goodness or provision. He's setting them up like a little child. He's like, here, hold this hammer. And then he's like, come over here. Does anybody have a hammer they'd like to use? It's, it's almost ridiculous when you look at this in this way. They had nothing. He fills their lives up, their pockets up with things. And he says, would anybody love to contribute something? Anybody have anything to contribute? God is graciously allowing them to play a part in what he has given them. Not only that, but what he puts inside of us. Notice Exodus chapter 36 as they're building this tabernacle. He says this, Now Bezalel and Aholiab and every skillful person, I love this, in whom the Lord has put skill and understanding to know how to perform all the work and the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with everything that the Lord has commanded. He said, I'm going to ask you for this task to be completed. And I'm going to ask you to, to play a part in building this tabernacle. But from your very beginning, I have placed inside of you what you will need to be able to do this. It's like, I, I love this, the, the, the skill that we find as uh, Bezalel uh, is talked about in Scripture of having great artistic skill. Now, I just imagine it. Maybe he, he was just a little boy that loved to draw, that loved to create different things. And his parents were like, I don't know where this comes from. I don't know where he gets it from. We, we're both like carpenters, but man, we, we can't put anything together like he can. I just wonder this life of creating, of, of doing all of the things. And then all of a sudden he gets this opportunity and somebody says, hey, we'd love someone to design the tabernacle, something that God is going to do to express his presence in Israel to the nations. Does anybody know how to sew tapestry? Bezalel said, man, I, I've been doing that all my life. I didn't know why. I, I, didn't, I, don't, I never learned it. I never took lessons. It was just there. See, God places in us all of these things, all of these talents, all these passions. And that's what makes up the church. I, I love this question. When we do uh, membership meetings, many times we say, what gets your heart pumping when we start to talk about this cause, this ministry, this thing? What gets you alive? For some of us, that's uh, international missions. For some of us, that's like workplace missions. For some of us, that's like neighborhood stuff. For some of us, that's like abortion clinics. For some of us, that's adoption. For some of us, that's foster care. For some of us, that's like just social issues. But the Lord has placed inside of all of us these passions and desires and giftings. And he's saying, hey, I've got this world that's broken that needs help. Will anybody have anything to do with this? 
And we wonder, ah, I don't know. I mean, I've got this thing that I'm passionate about, but I'm probably not the right person. God allows us and invites us into this place with things that he has given us. Our passions, our desires, all of those things. Our time, our energy, our resources, everything, when we view it correctly, belongs to him. And we say, God, I only have what you've given me. But that's the incredible part, is that he's not just allowed us and invited us to be a part of this. God graciously provides for us so that we can play a part in his mission through surrendered giving. God graciously gives us what we need to play a part. By giving our time, by giving our resources, by giving our talents, all those things. He gives us those things so that we can be a part of what he's doing. I think this takes a little bit of us going back to the pursuing community and arrows out mentality. Because if if God has given me everything that I have for me, then I view everything that I have, my my stuff, my possessions, my money, my resources, my even my my intellect, my uh, ability to communicate, uh, my time, my talents. I view all of those things to only further my cause and only further what I want to do. But if I believe that God has given me time for His mission and talents for his mission, then then I view that very differently. I I end up viewing things like small group very differently. Things like small group where often I can have a long day. We have a small group on Mondays. uh, And so often, you know, Mondays, it can be a long day. For me, uh, there can be many occasions, many, many occasions, where at the end of a Monday, I think, man, I've had a long day. It'd be nice not to give my time to anyone else but to keep it for me. It'd be nice. And it might be more comfortable for me. But I think that's a little bit of incorrect thinking where I think that God has given me my time just for me. Maybe I can convince myself, I don't, need, I, don't, I don't need small group tonight. What I need is just quiet. I'm not saying we've never canceled small group. We have before. But I just think about this. What if someone else needs you to be in small group that night? What if the reason for you being in that small community inside of this community isn't for you, but it's for them? See, when we view things really closed off, we think arrows in and we think, man, it would just be easier if I didn't do that tonight. Well, sure. But when we view things open-handedly, we think, man, it's been a long day. But I bet somebody else in small group has had a long day today too. I wonder if I can speak a word of encouragement. I wonder if the Lord has given me something to share with them. I wonder if the Lord has given me already something in my day that they need in their day. It's a total different shift of how we think. It's arrows out. It's kids ministry here. 
I was talking to Jenny uh, earlier today. She said, you know, did you know that we have 130 children that regularly attend Exchange Church? 130. And Jenny, as she networks with other children's ministries uh, in, in the area, do you know the average size of a church that has about 130 uh, children in their, that regularly attend in their ministry? Do you know the average size of that church? 1,500. 1,500 is the average size of a church that has 130 children that attend regularly. 1,500. That's what she told me this morning. We have been blessed with children. We have been blessed with children. That's who we are. That's who, that's the, that is a zone that the Lord has pushed us in. And so we can think about children's ministry, things like, okay, okay, I can do this. I can, I can do this. It's only two hours. No, 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 no. I can do this. I get two hours. I get two hours to spend discipling the next generation. I get two hours to pray over the children that are in this room. I get two hours to, to reinforce the idea that there's a creator out there that loves them. Two hours. If you didn't know, the sixth membership commitment at Exchange is that you work in children's ministry. <laughs> Especially if you have children and you have helped us with our ratio. We get to do these things because God has placed in us time, talents, and resources. And he says, here's a bunch of little kiddos. Here's a bunch of little kiddos. Teach them about me. God has provided for us. I think may, sometimes we think about opportunities like that and we think, well, I'll sacrifice not going to the service to do that. I'll, I'll sacrifice, you know, my time here to be able to do something there. We use that word, I think, a lot. I, I'll, I'll sacrifice even uh, finances. Sometimes we use that word. I'll, I'll sacrifice this thing to be able to give towards this thing. Or I'll sacrifice my time to do this. I'll sacrifice what I would love to do with my talent. I'm actually a really good singer. You guys don't know that about me. That's not true. It's not true at all, right? I was gonna say I was gonna sacrifice my ability as a singer to, to preach the word, but it's so preposterous. Jesse knows that. He's like, you will never have a microphone that has anything to do with a melody. We think about this word often, this word sacrifice. And I, I started looking up in scripture, uh, this word sacrifice. It kind of threw me off a little bit. This word sacrifice, it's, it's a word that the church uses often. We use it in, in church language, particularly with giving. We use this term sacrificial giving. So I looked up this word sacrifice and really the word, the, the root of the word is, is slaughter. The sacrifice wasn't the, the, the noun, it was the verb. Meaning that in, in actuality, also the sacrifice, when, when talked about most often in the Old Testament, when it's talking about these sacrifices, it's a nation, national communal sacrifice. It's like the day of atonement type thing, right? Where this nation is coming and they're slaughtering animals on behalf of their sin to appease God, the shedding of blood that will foreshadow the Christ's coming. 
The sacrifice isn't me like giving my lamb, right? The sacrifice is me literally slaughtering my lamb. The sacrifice part of it is, is not necessarily um, what, uh, what I give, it's how I'm giving it. What they're doing is they're surrendering their animal for what God has asked for. And then they're slaughtering, they're, then they're sacrificing it. There's a passage in, in Mark chapter 14 that I find very interesting. It's one that's probably very familiar to you and has Jesus at the center of this conversation and really the difference of sacrificing and surrendering. Mark says, while he, Jesus, was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table and a woman came out with an alabaster vial of very expensive perfume. Pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured the perfume over his head. But there were some indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? Insert sacrifice. John actually says that Mark is kind in this moment. John gives more specifics. He says the one who was saying this and stirring this up within the disciples was none other than Judas Iscariot. He says, why, why, why would you waste this? Why would you sacrifice this? This perfume could have been sold over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus says, whoa, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a good deed for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached in the entire world, that what this woman has done will also be told in her memory. There was a disciple, Judas, who said, why would you ever sacrifice that? It just sounds like, I wonder if anybody, when, when you sit down and think about that, would anybody in this room say, man, she wasted it on Jesus? She wasted what she had on Jesus. But in the moment, that's, that's what the disciples, all they could see, that's all that they could visualize, that's all that they could feel is this very expensive bottle of perfume poured over Jesus. It's gone now. I don't think anyone would say, no, she wasted it on Jesus. We would say, no, in this worshipful way, she, she surrendered it. Jesus is there anyone more worthy for her to pour her perfume on this is the difference between surrender and sacrifice I think when we often talk about sacrifice we 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 use it in maybe a way that I think either invokes I don't know pride or misery Maybe we think to ourselves, man, if I didn't sacrifice this gift, I could make a really nice car payment. Or I could, I could actually buy a new tractor if 
Now I'm invoking like judgment. I'm, I'm telling you what I have thought, right? You know, I've never used the word sacrifice when, when I talk about paying my mortgage. I, I've never used that term. When I say, you know, I have to sacrifice by, by putting a roof over my kids. I've never used that term. When I, when I say, like, I, I have to buy, I, I need to buy um, shoes and clothes for my children, I never say, I have to sacrifice for that. You know, there have been moments probably like yours where, you know, when you're an adult, uh, you know, there's no birthday parties most often, unless it's a big birthday party, right? A big year. But typically, like, my parents will send us, like, you know, like your parents might send you a card with some money in it or something like that. There's been times for Jan and I where we have used, like, our birthday money to buy something that the kids needed. But you, as a parent, you don't say, I'm going to sacrifice my birthday money to buy something for my kids. No, you, you do it because you love them. And you're like, they, they have something that's needed. It's not a sacrifice. It's the joy of being a parent. Somehow, some way, we've we've created this idea that whatever we give to God, whatever it is, talents, treasure, time, children's ministry, finances, that's a sacrifice. Somehow we've convinced ourselves that whatever we have, that whatever we can pry out of our own hands and place in another, we're sacrificing it. And I think scripture would say, no, 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 no. Joyfully, it's just surrendering it. It's surrendering what was never yours. Like the Hebrews who came out of the land of Egypt into a land that they did not build, houses that they did not build, vineyards that they did not plant, cisterns that they did not dig. He said, I've done this for you. I just wonder if our, if our hearts are, are clinging to this. I guess I can sacrifice not being in the service today. I guess I can sacrifice getting there early so I can set up. I guess I can sacrifice going to small group. I guess I can sacrifice by being in kids ministry. I guess I can sacrifice my time by learning worship songs so that everybody can sing. I guess I can sacrifice some resources or or time or different things like that. Or we just say, God, anything I have is, is, is actually yours. So you just direct me. Everything I have is yours. Just direct me. I want to end with like a, a, a modern day parable. I want you to think through this scenario and this story for a second. A father uh, who has great wealth and has treasured his family for years and decades, has grew his children in ways that, that are respectable and honorable and has loved them really well. And one of the family's traditions is every Friday night, this family gets together for a feast, not just for their family, but for their neighbors. They invite coworkers, they invite the poor, they invite everyone. And every Friday night, the one of this family traditions is, is everybody's here, everybody's welcome, we want you to come. But the father has this business and he needs to send his son across the country to run this section of the business. And his son is, is in great distress because he realizes he's not going to be there every Friday night for the family feast. So the wealthy father says, I've already thought of that. I've already thought of that and I've already got it covered. 
we have a plane for you that's just for you. And every Friday night, this plane is going to bring you to our house and take you back to yours. Every single week, we will pay for the flight. We will pay for the pilot. We will pay for the maintenance and the fuel. You don't have to do anything. Just get on the plane. And the son says, man, that's, dad, thank you. That's incredible that you already thought of this. You thought of a way to bring me back in fellowship with you every single week. Thank you. And so the first time they get on the flight, they just fly straight home. And it's like, wow, man, this is incredible. And they go home and they think, man, this was, this was great. I got to be there for everyone. And the next week they get on the flight and say, hey, hey, um, you know, I've never seen the Grand Canyon. You mind if we swing over the Grand Canyon before we go home? And the pilot's like, well, I mean, you're the boss. So over the Grand Canyon, they're doing some laps and it's this, man, this is incredible. You know what I could use? I know this is crazy. I know this is crazy, but I could really use a vanilla latte double shot from Starbucks. If we could just land somewhere, me pick one up real quick, it'll, it'll be like 15 minutes. And the pod's like, I, you're the boss, man. So you do that. You get to the party a little bit late. No problem. So next week is like, hey, man, I've got some, I've got some exciting uh, flight plans for us this week. We saw the Grand Canyon last week. This week, Tetons. Tetons. I brought my family. Also, our kid has a travel soccer game. So we're going to need to like land there really quick, let him play that. And then we'll fly to the, we'll, we'll fly to the party after that. The pilot says, I don't know if there's going to be anything left. Like the, your, your time's going to be like the party will be, I think actually, I think we'll be okay. We'll make it. So we do all of these things. We schedule all of these things and we start to get to the party later and later, and later. And eventually, we don't go at all. Meanwhile, the Father, who's provided this so that we can be in fellowship with Him, saying, and I gave gave you this so that you could be here. I gave you this so that you could be with me. I gave you this for a different purpose. And what we've done is we have hijacked what he has given us. See, it just depends. I think all of this comes down to this. Is it my plane or his? Is it my pilot or his? Is it my fuel or his? Is it my maintenance or his? Who's given me what I have? See, when we think about it like that, is it mine or his? It makes it really, really easy to separate. Am I sacrificing this or am I surrendering this? Am I living a life of sacrifice or surrender? So today, some of us, I think, need to, and I'm going to put myself in this. Today, some of us really need to ask the Holy Spirit. God, would would you help me live a life of surrender? Would you you help me to view everything that you give me in a way with open hands rather than closed fists? 
whatever it is, what, what, what is the most precious thing that you have that you feel like is sacrifice? Is it your time? Nobody else gets it. You think, man, I'm going to pop in. I'm going to pop out. I have nothing, nothing to give. Maybe the Holy Spirit needs to like pry some like white knuckles off of that for you. Maybe, maybe you have a secret talent. Maybe you can juggle like nobody else. We've never seen it. I would love to see it. But maybe you can disciple kids. Maybe for some of you, you're like, I've got nothing. There's a team that gets here at every, every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. They would argue with you. You got something. What, what, what is it that your hands are clinging tightly to right now? And would you just be open to asking the Holy Spirit, would you work in my heart on that? Would you help me surrender? Whatever it is, would you help me surrender that thing? See, God has graciously given us everything so that we can be on mission with him. Let's live a life of surrender. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts of surrender. We have so many idols in this life, Lord, so many idols in our hearts and in our minds, so many things that we try to attain to, hold on to, grasp for. Lord, would you pry our white knuckles off of those things and position our heart, Lord, in a way that honors you, in a way that pleases you to a life of surrender. Lord, whatever it is that you have asked of us, whatever it is that you're directing us to and for, Lord, would you help us surrender? You know, Father, that, that you give us these opportunities to expose and change our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that as we learn to surrender, that you would change our hearts. That you would force us into places uh, that may be uncomfortable, but that you uh, are with us in and have a plan for us in. And so, Lord, I pray that even now your spirit would start to slay the idols that we have in our lives. The things that we hold so closely to. Lord, first, before you slay them, would you reveal them? I pray, Lord, even now, Lord Jesus, would you show us the places in our hearts We desperately need your help. Lord, would you make us good ground to grow good things in? And would you start here, Lord, with open hands? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray.